Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, Sarah. Um, and thank you for that song. That was, I think, the perfect, perfect entry to this morning's message. And I appreciated singing those words and being reminded of those truths as well. So this morning, we're continuing on our series in 1 Peter, so the first letter of, of Peter, and we're up to chapter 2. Now last week, Jeff talked about how we've been ransomed and redeemed, how we've been cleaned and restored to full potential and given a place of honour, and that that's our identity. So this morning... We're going to look at identity in a little bit more uh, depth and a little bit more uh, breadth. And we're going to, I guess, get a bit more of an idea of um, how Peter saw the church and how he wanted people to understand who their identity was in Christ as he builds towards his central message in the middle of his letter. So you may recall that at the start of the series we learnt that this letter from Peter was written to Christians spread across Asia Minor and that they were experiencing persecution, so trials and difficulties because of their faith um, in Christ. So that's who Peter is writing to. That's who his readers are. But we also need to keep in mind that the timelessness of this message, of this letter, that it is for us too, um, here and now in our situation. So as I work through the passage, you're probably going to hear me interchange between references to them being Peter's original readers and references to us being his current, the current readers. So bear with me because um, you'll kind of see it kind of ebb and flow that way, but it helps remind us that we're part of a much bigger story um, that Peter is telling. And... Uh, that's a good thing for us to keep in mind. I wonder, have you ever watched the TV series Who Do You Think You Are? Yes? A couple fans. All right, does anyone else know, not know what I'm talking about? Okay, so it's a TV series that is based on um, Family Tree. So each episode takes a particular well-known person, so it could be some kind of celebrity or someone who's, who is well-known um, in the public, and they actually trace back their own family tree. So they might not know very much about a certain part of their family or their history, and so each episode that kind of takes them through, so they trace the story of their own personal history. And sometimes what is uncovered is quite extraordinary. But it also under, helps them to understand who, what their identity is, where they come from, um, how they came to be, partly who they are. And a really interesting example is, um, you may be familiar with the journalist Jennifer Byrne. When she did her family tree, she was actually able to trace back through her mother's side of the family. Her family tree line goes back all the way to King James III. So back in like the 16th century or something. Quite extraordinary. She discovered that she actually had a royal lineage. We kind of see a little bit of a parallel um, when we look at Peter um, and what he has to say and how he approaches the story um, of 
this new community of believers in Christ. So what he's talking about is the type of community that the new believers, those who have um, believed in Christ and have been born again, the type of community they've been born into. And his emphasis here is not on the community of believers in terms of their relationship to one another, but their relationship to God, to redemptive history and to those outside the community. So last week Jeff talked about our relationship with one another. This week we're going to focus on the relationship of the community um, to God, to redemptive history and to those outside the community. And Peter does quite a masterful job of building that argument and he uses parallel imagery, he draws connections and relationships between Christ and his followers, between the old covenant and the new covenant to establish his readers' full identity in Christ as believers who've been born again into a living hope. So as we read through the first part of this passage, I want you to look out for those images, those connections and those relationships. So starting from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So what did you notice? What images did you notice? What connections? Nobody noticed anything? It's not a trick question. Sorry? A lot of building in there, yes. There is a lot of building in there. Multiple references to stones. We'll get to that. Anything else? Anyone noticed? Mm. 
Yep, we are. All right. <clears throat> I won't labour that point anymore. Okay, so what, what is he saying? Well, the first thing that I notice is the, st- is the stone imagery. Excuse me, so I'm just going to have some water. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As people come to Christ in faith, they take on his nature. As he's the living stone, resurrected from death, so they become living stones born again and it's the Holy Spirit that does that and not individual stones are not just kind of all randomly scattered about the place but actually built up into a spiritual house the place of God's dwelling on earth by the Holy Spirit and this spiritual house is a place of true worship and sacrifice that is acceptable to God through Christ Interesting that we're built as a spiritual house. And it's not just us here in this room. It's not just Christians around the world today. It stretches back over time and forward to those who come after us. We are part of this enormous story that God is telling. This church that he is building. We all have a place in that. So we have to understand the context of the much bigger um, story that we're part of. And this is part of what Peter is trying to tell his readers. So about that living stone. God kind of turns things upside down as he's wont to do. The builders that he refers to are all those who don't respond to God. And they rejected Christ. But to God, he's precious and chosen as the cornerstone of God's own building project. And without Christ as the foundation, it wouldn't exist. Now, Peter's drawing on this stone imagery from the Old Testament. It's from Isaiah and from Psalm 118. And Isaiah 28, 16 says, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. Safe for us to build on. And it's been part of God's plan. But for those who reject Christ, he becomes a stumbling stone. Coming to Christ or rejecting him determines one's relationship with God and consequently one's destiny. There's no neutral territory when it comes to encountering Christ. Let me move on to verse 9. 
It says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Last week, Jeff shared with us like a before and after story of a cracked and dirty bowl that was redeemed and restored to beauty and to a place of honour. That is who we are. And we are that because of Christ. So Christ, who was honoured by God, we are honoured because of Christ. We are a chosen people. We are a holy nation. We are a royal priesthood. And we are God's special possession. This is our identity in Christ. Now, Peter deliberately draws on language and images from God's original covenant with the Israelites. And he applies it to this new community of believers. So now, everyone who believes and responds to Christ in faith inherits the identity that once belonged only to the Israelites. I just want to read out of Exodus chapter 19, so where we see where this comes from. What is Peter drawing on? On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Can you see what Peter's doing? He's taking that very identity that God had given his elect people, the Israelites, way back in Exodus. And he's saying, this identity applies to you too. This identity applies to us too. And that identity has a purpose. To declare God's praises. And not just with words, but also with our lives, as we'll see when we get to verse 11 and 12. Our identity in Christ. Does, do, you, do we get that? Do we really get what that actually means? I think we really struggle. I think we really struggle about just how precious and amazing and extraordinary that is. Extraordinary. It is. For us to be seen as so precious that we can take on the very nature of Christ, God's Son, 
that that is how he sees us. That he had a plan right from the beginning that included us as part of what he was doing, as part of what he was building. So why is it important for Peter to tell everybody what their identity looks like, what it is? Why do you think he spent all this time talking about identity of the church? Any thoughts? Yep. Spot on. Do you want to come finish the sermon for me? <laughs> Our identity is what we live out of. It's what informs. It is, it is who we are. We live who we are. But we need to understand who we are in order to live who we are. So, when we come to 11 and 12 we actually start to see how we're being called to live. How Peter is talking to um, those Christians in Asia Minor who are struggling because of the persecution that they face over their faith. So let's have a look at verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Feel good? Excited? No? How do you feel about him referring to them as foreigners and exiles? Or referring to us as foreigners and exiles? What's going on with that? Well, it's possible that Peter's original readers were literally foreigners and exiles in Asia Minor. So it kind of just would have been obvious to them. <clears throat> but as the letter reached a wider audience, that may not, all, that may not have been relevant um, in that direct manner for them. But it takes on a figurative understanding. Remember... Part of our identity is being a holy nation. So first and foremost, we're the citizens of God's holy nation. So Peter wants them to understand that who they are in Christ so they can be that in society. He wants to address how to live as a Christian in a world that is hostile to the gospel. So as citizens of God's holy nation, Christians are to understand themselves as foreigners and exiles wherever they may be living. And foreigners and exiles may appreciate, respect and value their host land, but nevertheless, they still maintain their own distinct identity within it. So what's the implication for that? Sinful desires, things that may even be socially acceptable, actually war against the soul. That's a really strong statement, that they war against the soul. So we can't afford to be complacent about that. 
Peter's warning Christians to abstain from desires that are destructive. He doesn't elaborate here, but we might surmise some of the things he had in mind. I want to have a look at um, Galatians chapter 5. Sorry, I don't have it um, on the screen for you. I'm just going to read it out to you. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a clear distinction between how um, the, our hostile world functions and how we as the holy nation of God are to function. The sinful desires <coughs> excuse me, are in conflict with our identity as a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a chosen people and God's precious possession. So then Peter shifts from that negative to a positive statement and he urges them to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. They are the light shining in the darkness of the society that they live in. And his challenge is to live such good lives among those who don't believe that it will be undeniable, that it will ultimately bring glory to God. So how? It's all very well for me to stand here and say, abstain from all sinful desires. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so how does that work? I want to go back to that first part of um, Galatians. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So how do we do that? How do we walk by the Spirit? Well, we do need to remember that we're part of the spiritual house, that we are God's dwelling place by his Holy Spirit. So he is immediately with us and present and in us, individually and together, because we are that spiritual house. So some things that I want to share that maybe you can take away with you that may not immediately feel very practical but they are immensely practical first of all God's word immerse in ourselves in it meditate on it I want to read Psalm 1 for you or the first three verses blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is a tree, is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, 
and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Let's not underestimate the power of God's word, his living word at work in us. Next point, prayer. You kind of knew that was going to come from me, didn't you? But what else? Prayer. Our relationship with God, who loves us, who desires to be with us. Prayer, the place that he transforms us. Let's listen to what he's saying. Let's learn from him. Let's obey what he's telling us. Last point. The practising the presence of God. Is anyone familiar with that phrase? No? One or two? There was a 17th century uh, lay brother called Brother Lawrence who worked in a Paris monastery who was known for his practice of the presence of God. So much so that people actually came to meet with him, to sit with him, to walk with him, to learn from him. And there was a book that was written um, and published after his death. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. His relationship with God was so intimate that everything that he did in the course of his day, and he worked mostly in the kitchen, so he was you know, washing pots and pans and doing all kinds of menial tasks. Everything to him was an act of worship, was an opportunity to be in relationship with God so that even when he was doing things like washing the pots and pans, his sense of presence with God, his sense of worship with God was just as strong as it might have been if he was um, standing in a chapel and reading psalms or singing songs. And it was something that he did moment by moment through the course of each day. I want to read from you, uh, read to you Colossians 3, verse 1 to 2. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Set your minds on things above. Because all of those things are going to inform how you, the choices that you make, how you actually live your life out each day. As we make choices and live lives our lives in ways that are aligned with our identity in Christ, then we become more fully who we really are. And being fully who we really are will draw others to God's marvellous light. So I want to leave a a marvellous thought, as the author would say, with you to perhaps take into your week and ponder. And it's from James Bryan Smith, and it says, I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. Can you repeat that? Repeat it with me. 
I am one in whom Christ dwells and delights, and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. I would really encourage you to take that with you into the week. Remind yourself of it because it will help um, to embed your sense of identity in Christ um, as you begin or continue to live it out into the week. Let me just pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the immense truth that we are struggling even to grasp um, the reality of it for ourselves, of our identity in you and what it means as we live out our lives. Lord, I pray that you would continue to make it known to us, that you would continue to write it on our minds and our hearts, that you would help us to draw near to you, to notice your presence with us each, each day as we go about all the things that are part of our lives. Lord, that they and we will become lights in our community, that people will see how good lives we live and will see and glorify you for it. Amen.